Company's twice weekly podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week now, six years running, 300 and nearly 50 episodes, the world's largest weekly podcast that releases on both Tuesdays and Fridays in audio and video format, where twice a week we try to bring to you insightful stories, replicable best practices on how you can become a better leader. Franklin Covey, of course, the world's most trusted leadership company, 40 years in business globally, where we try to both bring insights from our own authors, thought leaders, and researchers to your organizations, whether you are a formal leader in the C-suite, perhaps you're a first-time, first-level leader, or maybe you're a solopreneur or entrepreneur and uncomfortably have become a leader of people. Perhaps you are a stay-at-home parent or you have retired and still have influence within many people's lives. We each week try to invest in you, not just with content from our own company, but from taking our spotlight, this metaphorical megawatt podcast now and shining on people that have stories, that have journeys, that have triumphs that can help make you a better human, a better leader, a better person. And today, you're going to be riveted by this guest. She is, in fact, a world record holder. She is an entrepreneur. She is the mom of seven young children. And she is the first woman in history to have climbed what are known as the Seven Second Summits. Today is a special day because it is coming on the fifth year anniversary of a near tragic car accident that she survived. And now today is the day of her new release called Break Proof. Her name is Jen Drummond, and the book's tagline is Seven Strategies to Build Resilience and Achieve Your Life Goals. Jen Drummond, welcome to On Leadership. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me here today. Great to have you, Jen. Today is launch day. I mean, it's honestly one of the most probably emotional days for all authors. You have poured your heart and soul into this book and telling the story of you becoming the first woman in history to accomplish the, um, the, a feat that many people can't even fathom, the Seven Second Summits, but it also comes on the heels of what was a car accident five years ago that started this second journey of yours in life. Not second, but many journeys. You are an entrepreneur. I mentioned mother to seven. Jen, first, let, let's, let's define some terms. What are the Seven Second Summits? Yes, um, the Seven Second Summits are the second highest point on each of the seven continents. So walk us through those, because everyone may not know what those are. And some ignorant people, like I was prior to your book and your journey, thought, well, if they're the seven second, they must be the seven easiest. Debunk us of that misinformation. Yes. Yeah, so actually, the second highest point on each of the seven continents is much harder than the first seven. Um, basically because of geographical location and just lack of support to climb these mountains. You have Ojos del Salado in South America, Mount Kenya in Africa, Mount Townsend in Australia, Dick Tau in Europe, K2 in Asia, and then you have um, Mount Logan for North America. Wow. And, and then we have Mount Tyree in Antarctica. I almost forgot one. Mount, there you yeah. go. Well, I mean, I mean, who hasn't climbed Mount Tyree in Antarctica? I mean, you know, what a throwaway. Hardly. Jen, let's rewind a little bit. Uh, talk a little bit about leading up to what happened five years ago, but not quite that story. Tell us about your journey to being an entrepreneur, to become a mom of these uh, seven children who look identical to you, five boys and two girls. Talk a little bit about what your life prior to this record-holding accomplishment looked like. 
Yeah. You know, I did an internship in college with a furniture company and we were hiring temporary labor because we could not mass produce this chair enough. And every day I'd go into work and I'd try to motivate these 200 people to work longer, stay weekends and help us get these chairs out. Y2K happened. And all of a sudden we had a surplus of chairs and had no need for these temporary labor people anymore. I have no clue to this day why I didn't quit that job. I was an intern in college, but I stayed and I helped let go 200 individuals and listen to their stories of what they gave up and why they wanted this job and how important it was and all of that. And with that experience, I put myself in a situation where I don't ever want to be here. I want to be in control of my career and my future. So I'm going to do my own thing. When I went to college, I was studying um, finance. So I took a job with a firm, worked there for a few years, and then started my own firm and decided I wanted to have children and be a stay-at-home mom. So I started to hire myself out of a position so that I could own a company and stay home with my kids. Jen, you live in Park City, Utah. Your firm is based in Michigan where you grew up, and now you have two major hats that you play. One is, you know, mom of seven children. One is entrepreneur owner of this very successful financial firm. And you're living life, like most of us do, kind of on autopilot, right? You have a social life. You have a very busy life uh, with seven children, shepherding them into great human beings, many of which of them were becoming teenagers. which has its own set of challenges. You and I will text each other lifelines as parents occasionally around what I should expect because your boys are a little bit ahead of my boys. We cross over a little, a little bit. And then in, in a, a fateful evening in Utah, one winter night just five years ago, something happened. And I want you to like dial it down and tell this story in detail because this really was a harrowing experience that became, if you will, a pivot point for what's happened since those five years. Tell the story of driving from, I believe it was the Heber area up into Park City where you live now. Yeah. So I was returning to my house from Heber, Utah. And on the side of the road is the Jordan L Reservoir. So I'm paying attention to the reservoir, wondering why it hasn't frozen over yet, wishing we would get more snow so that we could get out of this statewide drought naturally. And then luckily my attention gets pulled back to the road. When it's pulled back to the road, I realize I'm coming up extremely fast on a semi truck. And so I look in my rear view mirror, realize that I can get over. I go to get over and I don't make it. The passenger side of the vehicle encounters the back part of the semi-truck. The second that encounter happened, I remember telling myself, the only way I'm going to survive this is if I surrender. And so I put my hand on the steering wheel, I put my head on the headrest, and I counted how many times the car would endo. I was like, one time, two times, three times, and I knew I lost momentum, so I started doing sideways rolls. And eventually the car came to a stop in the median. I just remember when that car stopped, I'm like, okay, now I need to brace myself for another accident because that's what Hollywood has trained us. Luckily for me, that didn't happen. Instead, an individual started running towards the car and they were yelling, are you okay? Are you okay? And I heard it, but I wasn't registering that they were talking to me. And then finally that person peeled back the windshield and looked me in the eyes and said, are you okay? I remember looking back at them thinking, I'm not, because your facial expression is telling me I am not okay. So I closed my eyes to shut out the world, and I wiggled my fingers and toes. 
And I remember thinking to myself, I can feel my fingers and toes. I can feel my fingers and toes. I'm going to be okay. The guy that peeled back the windshield sat with me. He's like, you are. I'm going to sit here and talk with you until the ambulance comes. And so he did. I went to the hospital, get checked over. And lucky for me, I got to go home that same day. Jen, your car flipped how many times? End over end three times and sideways probably eight to ten. And you were bracing for um, impact from some perhaps oncoming car either way. You were expecting that. That did not happen, thankfully. You, you, you walked away from this car accident alive, you know, generally uninjured, other than all the obvious things that would happen to your body's cuts and scrapes and contusions and emotional, mental trauma. You had obviously some, some injuries. I don't want to under, underwhelm those. But then something interesting happened after the car accident. You went back and saw the car. And for those of you who may want to know what kind of car it was, you're welcome to share because I think people may want to go save to buy that model. But something happened when the investigators came. Share that part. Yeah, so the investigators were trying to rebuild the accident because it's actually a spot that they've had a few of them. And they rebuilt a bunch of different scenarios and called me to let me know there was not one scenario that they could build where I lived, let alone walk away. And just hearing that information from authorities really hit home like, wow, why am I here? Why was I saved? Why was I not taken? Couple that with a girlfriend of mine going running, asked me to join her one day. I couldn't because I was still kind of recovering from the accident. It was wet out. She slipped, she hit her head and she never came home. So here I'm sitting metabolizing these two catastrophic events, her not ever coming home, me somehow surviving something that should have been fatal. And I just realized in that moment, we do not get to choose when we die, but we sure get to choose how I live. we live. And I realized I need to start living. Like this life is a gift and it's our gift back to it, what we do with it. What a great gift to us. We don't get to choose when we die, but we do get to choose how we live. You've released this new book today that is a beautiful, uh, harrowing uh, recap of you becoming the world record holder climbing these seven-second summits. The book is funny. The book is harrowing. The book is riveting. And you teach a lot of lessons on how we as humans can also become break-proof, whether it is as a parent or a spouse or a caregiver, someone just surviving you know, a life on a daily basis, other people trying to accomplish their own Herculean tasks. I, I want to talk a little bit about what led up to writing this book, but first, what does it mean to become break-proof? Yeah. Um, I think becoming break-proof first is realizing that in our lives we're going to break. And when those breaks happen, whether they happen on us or we're proactive and schedule one, we have proof. We have proof of what's working, proof of what we need to improve, proof of what's required to get to our particular summit. And so we become break proof by combining the break with the proof and doing the work to continue forward. When I was halfway through this pursuit, I went to lunch with a friend and was sharing some of the stories. And my friend wasn't into mountaineering. and was like, you need to share these stories. They're riveting. They are inspiring. I don't even like mountain stories. And I like them. 
And when I was in the mountaineering environment, I realized so many of the lessons that I was learning in life or death situations are the same lessons we need to raise our children, to build that business, to do what we want to do to get to the summit of our metaphorical mountain. And so I take the reader on the adventure of each particular summit, extract a particular lesson from that experience, and then share it with the reader so they can reflect upon it in their own life and hopefully go farther on their journey. So many great stories in here. I too, not a mountaineer, don't intend to be one, but learned so many stories about resilience, about perseverance. I love the story about sometimes you have to climb down to climb back up. And that, that has been the biggest gift you've given to me um, as I read this book. Okay, let's rewind a little bit and we'll get into the book. You survived this car, this unsurvivable car accident. Uh, you, you come home and you have an encounter with one of your sons about some homework that became the genesis of this unbelievable project. Talk us through that encounter. Yeah, kids, I tell you. Um, so after the accident, 2019 became this year of the bucket list. Who am I? What do I want to achieve? What do I want to stand for? Why was I saved? So I started making a list of all the things I wanted to do, experience, and share with the world. And on that list was climb a mountain. I was turning 40 in 2020. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to climb a mountain for my 40th birthday to launch that next decade of life. Well, if everybody can remember back to 2020, COVID entered the scenes and me traveling to any country to climb any mountain was not in the cards. Instead, I got to be a homeschool teacher to my seven beautiful children because all the schools shut down. And so I'm doing math with one of my guys and he's struggling and I'm trying to give him that parent pep talk. And he looks at me and he goes, mom, if you believe in this, then why are you climbing a mountain called I'm a Dumb Blonde instead of a real mountain like Mount Everest? And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm a Dumb Blonde? I'm like, honey, the mountain I'm training for is called Ama de Blom. Not I'm a Dumb Blonde, but thank you. Finish your homework and we'll look at Everest. So he finished his homework. We look at Everest. He goes to bed. And I realize I'm still looking at Everest. I thought, you know what? His perception is his reality. If he thinks Everest is the hardest mountain in the whole world, I'm gonna climb it and I'm gonna show him that whatever our Everest is, we're capable of summiting. So I call a coach. The coach is like, yes, I can get you ready. Read this book about becoming an uphill athlete. I read the book. And in the front of the book, there's a story of a lady who got a Guinness World Record for doing something in the Alps. And I must have been having a really bad day teaching with my kids, and I wasn't feeling great about myself. And when I was talking to my coach, I said, I could have done that. Like, I could have gotten that Guinness World Record. That's how my kids learned how to read. And I would actually be a cool mom because I am not a cool mom right now. My coach kind of laughed it off. He's like, I'll think of something. Don't worry. I'm like, okay, sounds good. And I let the conversation go. And then a few weeks later, he calls me and he comes up with this seven second summit quest which to me at the time sounded like a tongue twister. I didn't even know what he was saying. And then he started to explain the mountains and what it would mean. And I would be the first female in the world to do it. And then he really hooked me with the concept of seven mountains, seven continents, seven children. It sounded like a jackpot. And for me, it did. So I said, yes, I'd never slept in a tent before. I barely climbed any mountains, but I figured we'd figure it out. 
you make it sound like it was going and visiting seven historical sites. This was a several-year quest that you saved for, that you actually worked hard and you saved your money to fund coaches and travel around the world. And there were several mountains where you were on them and you didn't um, summit. And it's not like, you know, driving to St. George, which is four hours away and climbing a mountain not, and driving back. I mean, you flew to Pakistan twice yeah. to mm -hmm. climb this mountain. Let's start with that story. Let's, will you start with the first attempt on the mountain in Pakistan and then the second attempt? Take a couple of minutes, take your time on this and talk about those two mountains and what not just you learned, but what we can learn through you and through your book, Breakproof. Yeah. So I had just come off a successful summit of Mount Everest in 2021. I was using Mount Everest to train for K2. So I had not had failure up to this point. I was feeling pretty confident about this pursuit and good about myself. And when I got to Pakistan, um, I learned a lot of lessons. One of them being big mountains take big teams. And in 2021, there was not big teams on um, K2. Everest had a season that kind of fell apart because of COVID. So Pakistan tightened up who could come into the country and climb, which meant there weren't as many climbing teams, which meant there weren't as many people to make the mountain safe and make it climbable. Um, our team was making progress on the mountain. There was not enough campsites for us to all stay together. So I elected to go a day ahead of everybody to keep space open for people. And one morning we woke up, we started climbing and I got a radio call. And then I got another radio call and another one. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, we're only supposed to get one call and then we get 15 minutes to find a location to call back. I just got four calls within five minutes. Something's wrong. I get to a safe spot. I hand the radio over to the porters. I'm watching them, trying to figure out what they're saying. I don't understand Pakistani, but their facial expressions confirm something's wrong. They hand me the radio, and in broken English, I hear, hey, Jen, Rick's passed away, Jordy's injured, and Stefan's stuck. These are our three most experienced mountaineers on our team, just got caught in an avalanche, and one of them who took me under their wing is now not alive. The other one's hurt and the other one's stuck. I don't have any place to place this. Like I'm on this mountain, like we read about this stuff, but it doesn't happen to us. Like, how is this happening? And I remember just contemplating like, what do we do? We didn't have a plan for when this was gonna happen. And another team came up to me and they said, hey, Jen, we're gonna go up the mountain. Do you wanna join us? Your team's going down. I thought like, do I wanna join you? No, I don't wanna join you. My team is going down. I'm going to go down with my team. So I go down with my team and we do all the things like that you're supposed to do. We have a funeral for my comrade that's no longer here. We get heli evacuation for the one that's injured. We pack up camp and we start heading home. I make it back to LA, I come back to my house. Kids are coming home from camp a couple days later. I'll never forget my son walking in that front door and he's all excited to see me. And he's like, mom, mom, did you summit? And I looked him in the face. I said, no, I didn't, but I had success. And he looks back at me with his confused eyes like, huh? 
I'm like, honey, who we show up as people is way more important than anything we'll ever achieve. And I'm proud of myself and how I showed up. I put people over peaks because the peaks will always be there. And I walked them through the situation that had happened and we discussed it. And I told them like, I have to go back. Like this is one of my climbs. This is part of my pursuit of empowering moms across this world that we can do ourselves. And by doing that, we empower everybody around us. My kids are like, okay. So I'm training and getting ready to go back to K2 in 2022. And it's hard because now I know what I'm getting into. Now I know what's expected. Now I've, I have PTSD at some level of what's happened before. And three weeks before it's time to go back, I get a phone call. And the phone call lets me know of an individual that's been training to climb the mountain that doesn't quite have the resources to make it happen. Is it something I can help with? And I'm, I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is good. I will help with this. And this gives me a little more meaning outside of myself of this pursuit ahead. So I go back to K2 in 2022. On July 22nd, I become the third American female to summit. And 30 minutes later, the first Pakistani female stands on top of her country's prize peak. And I got to be a part of that story. I have 10 year old daughters. I know firsthand how important it is for them to see somebody that looks like them in environments that they air quotes don't belong because now it starts questioning everything. And when we become curious, possibility exists. And I know people that are listening here today, wherever you are in your pursuit, whatever challenge you're taking on, it's probably not a straight shot up the mountain, but sometimes that's the universe using us for more to have a better story come out than what we ever imagined. Jen, riveting story. I want you to check your humility for a moment and rewind because all we hear is, so I flew to Pakistan, which is hysterical because this is not like flying from, you know, San Fran to LA. And you don't just all of a sudden land at the base of the mountain. Will you indulge us and remind everybody what it is like to get to the top of K2? There's like four or five major things that have to happen and hikes and there are animals. And walk us through that story, including an interesting thing that happened to you while you were at K2. I say interesting, yeah. I mean, when I say interesting, I mean like harrowing. Yes. Um, so I believe that the universe is always working for us. And here's an example. So K2 is about a 60 mile trek into base camp. Unlike Everest, you do not have tea houses and everything along the way. You're building camps, you're taking it down, you're building camps, you're putting them up, you're taking them down. And as you hike in, you're gaining altitude. So it normally takes seven days to start and get to base camp. And we're hiking in with animals that are carrying our gear and helping us out. And we're melting water from the river and different things. And so I get sick on the way in, which is not abnormal. I get jardia. So everything's running right through my body. I go on an antibiotic, probably a dose too strong for my height and weight. So it clears out all my good and bad bacteria. I start feeling better. I'm the human that checks on all the animals while we're hiking in, like make sure they have their food and are they getting water and is their weight too heavy? And I care about them. And I'll never forget that one day, this one donkey sneezed on me. 
And I'm like, buddy, I'm the only one who cares about you. And you're going to sneeze on me. And I have like doggy slime everywhere. And I'm disgusted. And I told him like, I'm not coming back. This was not cool. And I don't think about it, but I get sick again. And so they think, oh, it's just something with the water. So I go on an antibiotic and then I get sick again. And I go on and off of this, this entire expedition. I'm now 30 pounds lighter than when I started, when it's time to start climbing K2 because the weather window opened. And my guide is like, I don't think you're climbing. I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm not coming back. Like this, we're climbing. I don't care if I'm sick the entire way up this mountain. I'm not coming back. Like I've already been here twice. And so I am sick climbing K2, thinking that I just have a stomach bug. I like celebrate that I had success. I come back down. I go to call my family on a satellite phone and there's a voicemail. And the voicemail is a message from a camp counselor at Yosemite National Park where my two oldest boys are attending. And they decided that they didn't like camp. And so they wanted to check themselves out. So they're right now with a counselor two to one until someone will get them because at their age, they do not have to stay in camp. They're allowed to leave. No one's forced to be there. And so I tell this camp, I'm like, Hey, listen, I just summited K2 in Pakistan. It's gonna be a little bit for me to get home. You can keep them in camp. They'll be fine. She's like, no, I'm sorry. This is our strat. This is what we do. And I'm like, okay, perfect. So I left all my gear and I doubled down on the hiking out. I think it took me 36 hours to get to the airport. I'm like, I need to get these kids. What's going on? I land, I pick up my children, I get home and I go, I mean, I need to go to the doctor. Like I am still sick and nothing's getting better. I thought maybe when I got to the US, the food would be better and I'd be okay. I go to the hospital. The hospital starts running a million tests and they ask me like, hey, were you in a third world country? Yes, I was. Were you by farm animals? No, I wasn't. I was climbing a mountain, like kind of boasting my chest a little bit. And I'm like, wait, no, I was by farm animals. In fact, one sneezed on me. They're like, okay, great. We're going to run a different test. So they ran a different test and found out that I had contracted anthrax which is a natural bacteria in third world countries with farm animals. And normally if your body wasn't compromised, you would be able to fight it off. But because I had already been compromised, I didn't have anything to fight it off. So that bacteria kept growing. And in fact, I had it so bad that the doctor said, listen, we have a 40% chance of bringing you back hundred percent. One more day, two more days in that country, you wouldn't be here anymore. So those boys, Quitting camp are the best thing that ever happened to you. And I think about it and I'm like, the only thing that would have brought me home at the pace that it brought me home was something wrong with my children. Jen, this book, Breakproof, walks the reader through life lessons, business lessons, lessons as solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, people at home wondering what they might do to make more meaning in their life, and you teach so many applicable professional life lessons. It's why your keynoting um, is in such demand now around the world. You share a similar story of lessons to learn from your time in Russia. I forgot the name of the mountain, you'll repeat it. But something fascinating happened, really quite frankly, before you climbed the mountain. This isn't a two hour podcast, but we're gonna take the time we need today. Would you, with the same detail, walk through what happened on the way to get to Russia, and then what happened once you land on the ground? And then will you tease out what are some of the principles that business leaders, and for that matter, people generally looking to pivot 
need to take away from that experience? Yes. So we got permits to climb in Russia, which was a huge win back in September of 2021. That climbing season was July, August, September. I just had the tragedy happen at K2. The fact that we got permits to climb in Russia, I'm like, okay, we need to get back on the saddle and go. The interesting thing about climbing Dick Tau is that it is a technical climb. So with a technical climb, it means that my gear needs to fit very well so that I have the dexterity to operate in the environment. Example, I ordered 20 pairs of gloves. I sent 19 pairs back because one pair fit that would give me the dexterity and also the warmth that I needed to climb. So I go to fly from Salt Lake City to Amsterdam and then Amsterdam to Moscow. I land in Amsterdam. I check my flight. They're like, yep, everything's good. That flight's taking off. You're going to leave in six hours. Okay, perfect. I take a nap in the lounge, go back to board the plane. And when it's time to board, they're like, oh, we're sorry. You can't board this plane. This is repatriation flight only. Like, okay, how did we not catch that earlier? Like, I don't know. You can only enter Russia from either England, Istanbul, or Paris as a U.S. citizen. Okay, perfect. So I go to get rerouted to Paris and I land in Moscow. When I land in Moscow, the guide meets me and we wait for my bags and we wait for my bags and we wait for my bags to find out my bags didn't make it and no one has any clue where they are. I'm like, okay, well, we'll just wait. And the guide looks at me and he goes, I'm sorry, Jen, the weather window is now. We either go now and we rent gear or you don't climb and you go home. And I sat there for a second and I almost went home. I almost went home think, okay, I've been in an airport for 36 hours. This thing has been an uphill battle since the beginning. I think it's time to turn. And then I realized, you know what? I don't have a lot of information on this mountain. So I'm just going to rent gear and we're going to get as high as we can and see what happens. So we go to the rental store and we start trying to find gear for me, which nothing fits. I have to rent a jacket that I roll the sleeves up on. I have a backpack that we have to tie so that it doesn't fall off my shoulders. I have boots that are too big. Then we stop at a store where I can get toothpaste and underwear and socks. The underwear that fits me is little boy underwear. I'm wearing Scooby-Doo underwear climbing this mountain. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, like keep laughing at me, universe. Thank Jen, you. Jen, I got to stop you for a second. Because one of the things I like most about you is you tend not to get mired in details and you're a very humble person. But there are so many funny parts of this book because you weren't at a mountaineering store. You were at like a TJ Maxx or a Marshalls where these two Russian guys who barely spoke English are basically taking you to a Marshalls to get gear that you have painstakingly bought multiple versions of everything for months and months and months to go on this technical climb, and you're just like going down the aisles of TJ Maxx buying stuff that doesn't even fit you, and, and you're kind of making the best of it. I am, I'm making the best of it. And here the thing is, as we go up this mountain, it's horrible weather, everything that can go wrong goes wrong, but we summit. And we start going down the mountain. We get caught in an electrical storm. We have to scoot on our butt in sections of this mountain. And we have to do all these weird things that you're not trained. Like I'm slithering like a snake on the second highest point in Europe. But no one cares. And it reminded me of when I played soccer in college. My coach would say, no one cares what the goal looks like, Jen. They just want the score. So stop trying to set up the perfect goal so that you get the perfect picture so that everything lines up. Just get it in the net. And when it's in the net, now you can work on your next one being perfect and pretty and beautiful. And that was the Russia climb. Like I had this idea of what it was supposed to look like. 
I allowed it to look entirely different and just be like, hey, no one asked me what I look like going on the mountain. No one asked me that I like this maroon coat or not, or if I'm wearing Scooby-Doo underwear. They asked if I summited. I summited and I got back down. And guess what? Six months later, Russia closed to U.S. citizens and I still wouldn't be allowed to go back there and climb that right now. The book is phenomenal. Uh, for a guy that doesn't intend to ever climb a mountain or wear Scooby-Doo underwear again or you, all the hysterical stories, honestly, and they're not all funny. I mean, some of these are life or death, right? One thing as I learned about you from reading this book is that, you know, the most important thing to you in your world are your seven children and you took no risks. I mean, you literally climbed down from mountains in Pakistan where it wasn't the right time. There are so many business leadership lessons to take from this is don't be the hero, don't be the gutless wonder, don't take chances, follow the rules. Uh, yes, go with your gut, but base that on all of the data and the information, the science you have and a, and a group of quality people that are trained around you. So many great leadership principles. I wanna end and share one thing. It's a little bit of a downturn and it's the time that the Sherpa uh, broke the rules. And I'd like you to share that because, again, there is such a great business lesson. And especially for those entrepreneurs who might be extreme athletes, who might resonate to your style of, you know, pushing the boundaries and taking risks to become the first this or the greatest that, you ground this, books, you ground this book almost like a mantra, people over peaks, people over peaks. You repeat this phrase consistently. Talk about the Sherpa who broke the rules. Yeah. And yeah, remind yeah. everybody, so, we, we, we hear this term Sherpa, and sometimes we maybe denigrate it or relegate it. Talk about what a Sherpa really is, what their role is, and then share the story. Mm -hmm. So in Nepal, if you're a Sherpa, that's a very honorable role, and it's sought after by many people. And the Sherpa is a person that you climb with to get to the top. And a lot of times nowadays, you have Sherpa that have climbed 15 times, 20 times, 10 times, and they work with the climber to keep them safe. They also get gear up the mountain. So they might climb the mountain a couple of times, but I'll only climb it once. And they'll set ropes and make everything set up. So we had a really strong Sherpa team. And it was a snowstorm that we were climbing in at one section of the mountain that we weren't really expecting. And so the nice thing is, is you're tied to a rope, you have the different clips on, so everybody's just following the rope and making it go. And you can't see to the left of you or to the right of you. So you just keep following this path and you trust that everything's going okay. Well, on our rope, a Sherpa had to use the bathroom. So he goes to unclip from the rope, which you should never do. You should always just go to the bathroom on the rope or wait. And obviously he couldn't. He took a few steps to the side and fell into a crevasse and they were not able to rescue him. And it's a sobering story. You tell it with great respect in the book. In fact, you share the story of a couple of people who you become close to, friends, confidants that lost their lives. And you're very, you do a very nice job of continuing the narrative and teaching lessons while paying great respect to the people that for whatever their own purposes were, whatever their own goals and reasons were, they did or did not accomplish them. The Sherpa story for me was especially resonant because I like to push boundaries, right? Sometimes, to quote my friend Ty Schmidt, there are stop signs in the middle of Iowa that are stoptional, not in town, but some things in life are stoptional. There are some rules that are there, you know, you know, uh, 
what is it? What's it called? The, what's the, it's the? Are they suggestions or are they you know letter of the law versus spirit of the law? But for that one, for me, it was very sobering to recognize there are there are boundaries that we need to respect, whether it's Mother Nature, whether it's principles that govern human behavior, whether it's leaders and organizations. So many great stories in this book to remind us of you know when to take risks. And when do we consider, should I put people over peaks? I'm mindful of our time. I want you to share one last story. It's kind of hard to pick which one. I think you were in Antarctica. And just all the detail of, you know, how long can the flight go before it has to turn back around, whether it can land or not. And there's so many harrowing stories. You talk about what it was like in terms of your senses climbing Antarctica and how everything was the same color and just the feeling that you experienced on that journey. I don't think it was the most difficult hike if I, or not hike, climb. There's a difference between hiking and climbing. I apologize, wrong word. Talk about what you experienced on that climb. Yeah, Antarctica was this mystery mountain to us at some level. How do you get there, Remind us, sorry, remind us how you get to Antarctica. Yeah. Okay. So how you get to Antarctica is you fly into Punta Arenas. And at the time we're doing COVID tests every other day. And then after we've been there long enough, done enough COVID tests, then you take a 747 to fly down. And sorry, where, and sorry, reason- Jen, sorry. Where is Punta Arenas? Remind us what country this is in. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we fly into Punta Arenas, Chile, which is the southernmost point of Chile, which gets us as close to Antarctica as possible. We do COVID tests and we finally get cleared to be able to go. And when you go to Antarctica, the weather there has to be perfect sunshine because there is no control tower or lights for the pilot to follow. He is strictly following his shadow on a solid ice shelf to land this plane. And we fly a 747 is because if we get down there and there happens to be all sudden clouds that form, and he can't land the plane, there's enough fuel in that plane to get us all the way back to Punta Arenas. So just getting to Antarctica is crazy. And you have to spray off all your gear and have all your shoes clean so that you're not bringing any bacteria down to the continent. You have to go to the bathroom always in bags so they can bring everything off the continent. And when you're down there, there's no life. There's no color unless it's something that you brought in. All you have is snow, blue sky, yellow sun, and rock. So purples and pinks and reds and like all greens are just gone. Um, We go to climb Mount Tyree. I'll never forget getting dropped off there. The plane drops us off. And now we're, there's four guides and myself because we're an hour and a half away from perfect weather if something goes wrong for a plane to come back and help us. There's no helicopter rescues in Antarctica because helicopters can't operate in that cold of environment. The mountain we were climbing had only been climbed 15 times-ish before, and it hadn't been summited in a couple of years. So when we were on the mountain and looking at notes from before, it was, okay, did that boulder move? Are we going the wrong way? Did it roll down the mountain? Like there was just a lot of uncertainty. Um, and this climb is particularly difficult because the summit day prior to us climbing was 24 to 36 hours. Just because it was so steep, there's no other place to safely set up camp. I remember exiting my tent the morning that we were going for the summit push and just thinking, wow, how lucky am I to be here at this time? 
Had I been born when my mom or grandma were born, this wouldn't even have been in the realm of possibility. But here it is. And I carried so much pride being a female American, a mother, a person that got to represent all of us and say, look how far we've come. And when I waved the flag at the top, it was like, look where we are. Now we get to hand off this flag from here. Now we get to share notes and data and all the things that we collected on this pursuit. When the next team comes, it'll be easier for them. They'll have more knowledge. They'll be able to carry this journey further because of the work that we've done today. And everybody in their own little corner of the world is doing that for the next generation. No matter how significant or public or whatever, it all adds up and it all matters. Jen, at first blush, what you've done is both Herculean and unrelatable, but I think you've done a lovely job in your book, Break Proof, of making the lessons very relatable to apply in everyone's life, no matter what their metaphorical or literal mountain is. Great success to you on your coming book launch events. You're traveling the nation. You're on every major news program. Honor that you chose to stop by on Leadership Today. Your book is Break Proof, Seven Strategies to Build Resilience and Achieve Your Life Goals. Jen Drummond, thanks for coming today to On Leadership. Thank you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>